At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome in to another Baseball America Top 10 Prospects podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We're continuing our series today with the Boston Red Sox and their farm system. And to do that, I am joined by one of the titans of sports writing, the Boston Globe's Alex Spear. Alex, great to see you. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, Kyle, it's always a blast. Thanks a lot for having me on. Although titan is uh, maybe an exaggeration. I'm rather diminutive. <laughs> Your work is legendary. <laughs> I, I, you're, you're kind. I, I, the, I am grateful to be associated with legendary institutions such as uh, Baseball America and Boston and the Boston Globe that are, uh, you know, that um, perhaps, you know, give me more run than I deserve. <laughs> hey, I would say you've deserved it, but uh, they're lucky to have you and we're lucky to have you as well. Alex, you've done the Red Sox system for us, the Prospect Handbook for since, since before I joined BA. I feel like uh, it's been a long time now. You've seen all the peaks and valleys of this organization have written about them extensively. The Red Sox are in a, a transition period right now. Chief Baseball Officer Haim Bloom was fired toward the end of last season as the Red Sox spiraled to their third last place finish in four years under him. They went out and hired Craig Breslow, who was previously the Cubs director of pitching and a special assistant to the GM, to be their new chief baseball officer. But that came after a lot of very well-known, highly regarded executives passed up the opportunity to interview for the job. And look, the Red Sox have had a lot of success, but it's been difficult to hold a job even when you reach the summit. Ben Charrington won a World Series, was fired a few years later. Dave Dombrowski built literally one of the best teams the last 20 years, won a World Series, was fired less than a year later. Heim Bloom came in with a mandate to cut payroll, had to do the unpopular Mookie Betts trade. They lost out on Xander Bogarts when he left to go sign with the San Diego Padres. It does feel like this job has become almost impossible because even if you do the right thing and build great teams and win a World Series, there's still not a lot of stability. How do you assess the organization right now? And, and is it a sustainable model moving forward with kind of the unrealistic expectations you could say they've had? They want a lot. They want, you know, they want they want an organization that consistently proves capable of threading the needle, of being kind of um, clever about how it uh, goes about both pursuing um, short term success while also positioning it well for the long term. We've seen organizations that have done it. Um, you know, certainly the Dodgers, uh, the Astros, the Rays are all in 
kind of long-standing competitive windows of success. Like it's it's pretty remarkable when you think about the Rays being, you know, a 90-plus win team for six-plus years. When you think about the Astros being an ALCS team year after year after year. When you think about the Dodgers since 2017 having been good for basically, with the exception of one year, a good for 100 wins every year, um, it is possible. Uh, it's asking a lot. I, I guess that um, organizations should aim high, right? Like that makes sense. That is, uh, you know, the, the goal is to be a great organization. But the uh, the tricky part is that um, is that there is a an adjustment period, a transition period that always comes with uh, with appointing with any kind of front office turnover. So this is the third straight, you know, high and bloom was the third straight Red Sox head of baseball operations to have a four year tenure and to be dismissed um, before or pushed aside or what have you um, before the conclusion of four uh, of four full years. Um, and there are transitions that are associated with that. With Dave Dombrowski, it was relatively seamless because he was very comfortable just kind of, okay, I'm the new person in charge. We'll keep everything else more or less intact. Appoint a couple of advisors from outside the organization, but otherwise, like, let's keep going with this. It's just a matter of making a couple of different uh, moves at the major league level. Um, whereas, uh, whereas both Chaim Bloom and uh, and Craig Breslow, I think, have a bit more focus on infrastructure overhauls um, as kind of uh, as as kind of um, points of departure that must precede some of the major league roster building that occurs. And uh, yeah, so I think that there is general disruption. Like I think that if Chaim Bloom had not been said had not been uh, fired this year. Um, I do think that there was a sense that was growing inside of the organization, even after the trade deadline inactivity, that uh, this was going to be an offseason of kind of turning the dial up a little bit because there was a feeling surrounding the existing core that, um, OK, there's you, you can see uh, you can see a group forming that permits that window of long term contention. And I, I, I do wonder whether or not th this has not been an offseason of that to this point. And I do think that. Uh, the Red Sox are going to end up having a, an offseason largely of modest, relatively modest transactions. Um, and I do wonder whether or not uh, some of that modesty is uh, that Craig Breslow is learning his new organization and doesn't want to um, rush into making moves where uh, the amount of information that he has available to him might be uh, more limited than it would be otherwise. Yeah, and you mentioned that core. There is a group of talent here to work with. Tristan Casas was a rookie last year, really had one of the best rookie seasons in the American League, was just overshadowed by Gunnar Henderson. But he had a really strong season, I think, in some ways didn't get the notice it deserved. We saw Jaron Duran, after struggling his first couple of years, really break out a little bit last year in an injury-shortened season. Rafael Devers was excellent as always. He's still only 26, and he, or last year he was his age 26 season, I should say. One of the big issues, though, we saw was there are a lot of defensive shortcomings on this team, and that's something that's been an issue for a while. And that hasn't helped a pitching staff that has been hit by injuries in terms of some of their more established starters. We saw them just trade Chris Sale to the Braves in order to get Vaughn Grissom back, another young player they can build with. And look, it's no secret the Red Sox have struggled to develop starting pitching for a very, very, very long time. Brian Bayo is looking like maybe the guy who ends that drought, but one guy in about seven, eight, nine years is is not what you're hoping for. And I think that's where the Breslow hire is interesting because he took over the Cubs pitching infrastructure. The Cubs were the worst organization at developing starting pitching. They were so far behind everyone else. They had zero successes they could point to for about a six, seven year period. Craig Breslow comes in, 
turns Justin Steele from a seven-year minor leaguer into a Cy Young Award contender. Jordan Wicks gets to the majors two years after being drafted, which never used to happen to Cubs pitching first-round picks. Look at guys like Cade Horton in the farm system shooting up. He really did transform the Cubs pitching infrastructure and make it a lot better. Is that his main charge here with the Red Sox? Because it does seem like pitching is first and foremost what they have to improve to get back to being a postseason contender. I do think that that was a significant part of the reason why there why he had great appeal to Red Sox owners um, as a uh, as a candidate, um, and I, I do think that there is uh, that's a significant part of of what his charge is improving the overall development of uh, of pitchers and that goes up to the major league level not just with what's happening in the farm system but also up to the major league level and frankly like I do think that the Red Sox had significantly overhauled a lot of their processes with regards to player development on the pitching side in the last couple of years. Um, but Breslow is probably going to be, uh, is going to continue that, uh, that pattern. They also brought in Justin Willard from the twins organization to be their director of pitching um, and uh, Andrew Bailey from the giants to be their major league pitching coach. Um, I also think that we'll probably see more resources directed towards acquiring pitching than uh, than they've employed in the past. That's particularly at the amateur level, where the Red Sox have spent very little in terms of uh, draft capital um, and spending uh, on amateur pitchers. Um, and we also, frankly, saw uh, a relatively few trades for, um, for higher impact arms uh, in the minor leagues even. And we've already seen some, some shift in that regard with uh, the Red Sox making a trade with the Yankees to send Alex Verdugo out in order to get um, a pitcher like Richard Fitz, who, depending on who you talk to, some people see as, as potentially having uh, being a starter long term. Others see as more of a middle reliever. But uh, we'll we'll see where that goes. But I do think that there is um, a an intentional focus on creating a pitching pipeline that just hasn't existed. I would, however, add one other development success story. Um, to beyond Brian Bayo, uh, Cutter Crawford has emerged as a kind of um, as someone who has shown uh, the pitch quality and competitiveness um, and overall, you know, reasonable success uh, in uh, in parts of in stretches of 2022 and especially 2023, where he's a guy who gets uh, who's viewed by a lot of organizations as being um, as being a a pretty decent starting pitching prospect, but not not an anchor. He's not, he's not steel. Um, I, I think that it's, it is interesting to figure out exactly where steals, what, where to credit steals development and his leap forward, because a lot of that development happened. It took a long time and they were close to moving <laughs> into the bullpen uh, yeah. before, uh, before his, his breakthrough occurred. But um, I, I think that, uh, you know, they, the Red Sox do want successes like Justin Steele in their organization. Yeah, and Crawford's a good point. Again, a 16th round pick in 2017 from Florida Gulf Coast, mid-round, mid-major. Took him a little bit. His age 26-27 season is when it really started to blossom, but he did have a nice year last year, mostly starting a little bit of bullpen work. Certainly someone the Red Sox can build with moving forward. Alex, one final question before we dive into the individual players. When you look at Bloom's tenure, what are some of the lasting impacts? How do you kind of see and assess his tenure? And is there anything here the Red Sox are better off with than maybe they were when they hired him? Well, I think that their player development system has transformed significantly. Uh, transformed significantly while Heinblum was uh, with them. They went from a uh, pretty traditional um, 
organization uh, in terms of how player development was run and one that frankly was um, was not moving in the same direction as the uh, as the rest of the industry for better and worse, right? Like they're, I think that they had, uh, I think that you had a lot of very passionate traditional teachers um, who uh, who believed in, in teaching the game. And uh, there had been some successes at a very high level uh, under that group. But I think that you had seen um, you had seen fewer successes in terms of in terms of the Crawfords of the world making that developmental leap, whether changing their arm action or their pitch mix, both of which Crawford did uh, bookended around Tommy John surgery. Um, you know, it was a less data-driven organization. It is a much more data-driven organization now than it was when Chaim Bloom arrived. Whether that is for better or for worse remains to be seen. It can be that, you know, just because you're data-driven, that that is not a that is not that doesn't determine the adjective that goes with uh, the qualitative adjective that goes along with that. So um I, I do think though that uh that they have built a you know they've they've created a modern uh, a modern player development infrastructure that's you know quote unquote scalable and that is uh and where you saw a lot of people a, a lot of players i think that the overall value of players within the organization increased significantly whether that's as trade chips or as future big leaguers um things like you know getting Tristan Cassis as he's coming through the minors to overhaul his approach uh, to be more focused on on power, on driving the ball with impact and maximizing exit velocities rather than uh, rather than just allowing him to gain experience through the minors. I, I think that that accelerated. Um, th those were patterns that accelerated under Bloom. Um, and we'll see what the uh, what the long term in what the long-term impact is, but I, I think that objectively, in terms of how they're regarded by the rest of the industry, their player development system is viewed as being in a much better place. I think that at the major league level, um, you know, they bloom. I, there's a there's a chicken and egg question, right? Like you know, related to ownership. But um, the Red Sox have uh, have been far more cautious in terms of what their major league moves have looked like, um, starting with uh, you know much more focused on the long term. Um, less on immediacy, starting with the Mookie Betts trade. Um, and, uh, you know, so we'll, we'll see. They're still in that cycle in the offseason of 2023 to 2024. And we'll see when when or if they stop being in it. Yeah, yeah. And again, I think Bloom's legacy, I think, will come more and more into focus here in the coming years. As we saw, for example, a lot of the players that Ben Charrington brought in were players that contributed to the World Series winning team in 2018. Jarrington, of course, didn't get a ring for that. Dave Dombrowski did. But there's always a little bit of a lasting effect from the previous regime up to the next regime. And, and there is some credit that is often deserved there. Alex, moving into this system, Marcelo Mayer is once again the number one prospect in the system. Got off to a really, really good start last year. Frankly, looked like the best player on the field in the Futures game for at least the one inning he played. And <laughs> It was a brief look. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was just... Not a lot. But then we saw his numbers really kind of tail off as the year progressed. And later it was revealed he had tried to play through a left shoulder injury, uh, ultimately ended his season in early August. So in some ways, it was a little bit of like a deep breath. OK, these struggles are because he was trying to play through an injury as opposed to any big flaw in his game. As you were putting together this ranking, was there any consideration for anyone else at number one or is he still clearly the number one guy in the system? Yeah, I, I had a lot of uh, internal back and forth uh, about whether or not it should be Marcelo Meyer or whether it should be Roman Anthony, because, um, you know, 
they Roman Anthony uh, second round pick over slot in uh, in 2022 um, had a spectacular season where you started hearing buzz about him at the beginning of the season where it was like, oh, the under the hood metrics are great, even though his line in uh, in single A Salem was very, very modest. He was hitting in the like low to mid 200s and he was. Uh, he hit one home run in about a half season in Salem. And it was like, and people were like, oh, he's hitting the ball really hard. Well, none of it was translating into games. He had a really high ground ball rate, um, but he was, you know, receiving lauds for the quality of his swing decisions at a very young age and for the strength in his swing. And then they promoted him based on the under the hood metrics uh, in June. And, uh, and it was like, oh, that's a pretty aggressive promotion, but it shows you what the Red Sox believe in. And then he got to Greenville and started just hitting the snot out of the ball. Uh, and uh, some of the, um, you know, some of the balls that had been Salem is a very big park. It is a very pitcher friendly park. Um, the Carolina league, tough to hit home runs in uh, the Sally league, not tough to hit home runs in. And uh, particularly for a guy who is um, able to hit the ball with some lofts to all fields, uh, you can do so. You can put up some big numbers, and that's exactly what Roman Anthony started doing. The uh, the home run total started like you know coming like pin like a pinball game or something. Ding 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 ding, and all of a sudden, uh, Roman Anthony started looking like um, in high A one of the as an 18 year old one of the best uh, one of the best prospects uh, in the minors, and um, that continued uh, in that you know that he had an end of year promotion to Double A again. And I'm sorry, 19 years old. Um, but end of year promotion to Double A, unheard of for that age group with the Red Sox. In a number of years, the last guy to move up that quickly was Xander Bogarts. I think it had been about 25 years since a Red Sox draftee had been in uh, in Double A by the time he was 19. And in a you know 10 game sample, hit well there. At the same time, what Marcelo Meyer had shown before the shoulder injury had positioned him as one of the very best prospects in all of minor league baseball. He was doing it at shortstop, uh, where I think, you know, his actions still look very fluid. He still looks very natural at the position. Um, he's not an explosive mover, but he's a really efficient mover. And um, so you have this guy who has a chance uh, to, you know, you've who we've seen at multiple across multiple levels and across a somewhat broader period of time, um, hitting pitches all over the strike zone and being able to do so with this great bat path that creates this like nice natural loft. He is effortlessly going to be hitting uh, a billion doubles at Fenway park um, because of his ability to move the ball to all fields. But he was also starting to grow into some really interesting strength gains this year where it was like, Oh, like it's not just a matter of being a doubles guy. Like all of a sudden there are a lot of balls that are being hit at 110, 111, um, you know, kind of good major league exit velocities uh, as a 20 year old who didn't really work out in high school. So there's physical projection that remains for him, even though uh, even though he is a year older, both in terms of actual age and professional age, than Roman Anthony. And I didn't want to lose sight of that based on the period of injury, but I think that you can make reasonable cases for either of them. Ultimately, because of the conviction that Marcelo, uh, that Marcelo Meyer at least has a few years of runway in the middle of the field, um, I, I think that that pushed him over the top with Anthony. Uh, but I'm, I think that there are, uh, it's a very understandable case that many people would make that Roman Anthony was the number one. 
Yeah, it's a good problem to have. Two really good prospects where you're debating number one as opposed to two prospects you feel meh about debating who's number one. I mean, both these guys are our top 50 prospects in baseball. And I think when we put together our final top 100, there's a good chance they're both going to be top 25 prospects in baseball. And Marcelo Meyer, you make the point. It, everything's just so smooth and effortless. And that's been true since his earliest days at Eastlake High. You know, the greats make it look easy. It's a smooth, beautiful, balanced swing. And like you said, shortstop. He's not the twitchiest guy, and, and that's why some people have said, well, how's this going to look when he fills out and adds 20, 30 pounds? But everything is just so smooth. It's it's kind of a fun joy to watch him play shortstop. And again, it was only one inning, but we saw it in the Futures game. Uh, took a short hop, threw to first base, just made it look easy. I think there's something there to that as well. It's just that that smooth, beautiful, everything he does just looks right. And even, you know, I've, I've spent a reasonable amount of time trying to watch him, whether at the complex or I've, I've now taken multiple, you know, I've, I took a trip specifically to uh, see him play while he was in, while he was with Salem in 2022. And I took a trip for a few days uh, to Portland this year just to watch him play, although with a very talented group uh, that's that's going through there. And, you know, I, I I've been able to see his ability to adjust and adapt on a, on an at-bat to at-bat basis where we're even pitch to pitch basis. Like we walked through an at-bat that he had uh, in Portland where he, on the first pitch, he swung and missed against a, against a lefty, against a left on left slider. Um, and he described it as like having a shape that he hadn't seen before. So swung over the top of it. Right. So uh, then as the at-bat progresses, there was uh, the pitcher goes back to it. This time he takes on a pitch that dips below the zone. Then he takes a fastball that's elevated uh, and out of the zone, gets to a 2-1 count. Then there's another slider uh, that stays in the zone. He recognizes it, drives it to left center for a sacrifice fly. And like being able to see the way that he's adjusting um, on that pitch-to-pitch basis was instructive to me. Like I don't want to make too much of one single at-bat, but there's a thought process and there is a an ability to use experience to his betterment. Um, and I do think that it's important to have some context for his struggles once he got to double A statistically, um, with regards to the fact that he was, he had a, he had a shoulder that was, uh, that where he was losing strength and, um, it ultimately resulted in his, his season being shut down early. Now that creates different questions about the fact that he has had some bumps and bruises injuries over the course of his, his first two professional seasons. Um, and that was a question for me with regards to whether or not I should, uh, be more, I should give Anthony the nod at the number one spot because he has not had those issues of staying on the field. But um, they've all been relatively, they none of them are really like long-term structural issues. So you assume that just like greater strength, kind of, you know, getting more accustomed to pro ball will put him in a better spot to stay on the field. Yeah, talent plus aptitude, that's when special things happen as long as he stays on the field. There's definitely a lot of conviction he'll be a special player. All right, Alex, we talked about the first, two prospects in the system and there are some talented players below them again this is not a, a top heavy system that necessarily drops off dramatically there are some more top 100 candidates and good players beyond that we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to dive right back into the rest of the system with you we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed if you need to hire you need indeed 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Red Sox Top 10 Prospects Podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer alongside Alex Spear of the Boston Globe. All right, Alex, we talked about the Red Sox organization, just how they're functioning right now, what Craig Breslow is moving into and what his main goals are going to be, as well as look at the top two prospects in the system, Marcelo Meyer and Roman Anthony, who, again, both should be easily in the top 50 in our BA Top 100 when it comes out and likely will both be in the top 25. But it's not a system where there's just two guys at the top and then there's a massive drop-off. I want to talk to you a little about Kyle Teal, the Red Sox first-round pick in last year's draft. He was a decorated catcher at Virginia, was drafted more or less where he was expected. But his pro debut, it was, again, small sample, so take it with a grain of salt. But what he showed right off the bat really opened some eyes, uh, got to double A a few months after being drafted, hit for average, showed really good strikes on discipline, showed some extra base power. And I will say, just giving a sneak peek behind the curtain, as we started to put together our preliminary top 100, are sending it around the game to front office officials, GM, scouting directors, etc. Kyle Teal has been a consistent move this guy up. What do the Red Sox have here? Do they get a steal in the middle of the first round? Because it's looking like they might have. I, I, I think there's a reasonable chance of that. I remember, you know, sitting at the at the draft at the All Star game this year, and when the Royals passed on Teal uh, and instead opted to draft a college catcher, I was sitting next to Jake Mintz of uh, Cespedes Family Barbecue, uh, and uh, and I looked at him and I was like, 
where is Teal about to go? <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so started actually kind of pre-writing Kyle Teal about then as a Red Sox draftee. And uh, yeah, I, it was surprising to see him slip from, you know, that spot of about six to eight, where I think most people had expected him to go uh, to 14. And that's in a very, very good top of the draft class where, you know, the top five in the draft were like in any given year, like probably number one caliber talents, right? Um, in different, so Teal was not at that level, but he was not too far behind, uh, you know, behind that group in the second tier of, of, I think, highest quality players in the draft. The scarcity of yeah. catchers is a thing. Like, you do not find good two-way catchers in baseball. Teal has um, premium athleticism. There were games, uh, there were games in amateur showcases in high school where he literally played everywhere on the field. And uh, and at one point um, he was in the, I think it was the East Coast Pro Showcase when he was uh, playing for the Red Sox, uh, the Red Sox Northeast Regional Scout, Ray Fagnan. Um, he was playing in a, uh, no, this was actually at Fenway. This wasn't East Coast Pro. So he was uh, the Fenway, the rivalry classic between, uh, that's organized by, uh, by Ray Fagnant and by Matt Hyde, who was with the Yankees. Um, and all the players wear either a Red Sox or Yankees uniform. Uh, at one point, Ray Fagnan, he was he was playing on the Yankees side that day, but Ray Fagnan had him change uniforms mid-game, and uh, he hit a double for the in a Red Sox uniform. And uh, and Matt Hyde looked over at, at Ray and said, "Like, who is that?" And Ray was like, <laughs> uh, "He's your guy." Um, so uh, Teal is someone who has terrific athleticism, a long pedigree. Um, would have been drafted surely out of high school, but for the fact that it was the five-round COVID draft when he after his senior year of high school. Um, but uh, he looks like someone who is, you know, whose hands and whose feet and uh, and whose intelligence and feel for the game. His dad was a minor league catcher. Um, is going to be able to stay behind the plate. Uh, projects to have, you know, solid at least solid average defense. Now you wonder how he's going to take to the game calling parts of things because. He didn't have a lot of experience with that at UVA, as with most college programs. The game is being called from the dugout, um, but uh, he has experience around the game where there's and intelligence where there's confidence in what he's going to be doing behind the dish, and then uh, a an offensive approach that it's not going to be like sexy in terms of power, but he's going to have unusual ability to hit for average and get on base. Um, the fact that they felt comfortable saying, okay, you just signed. Yeah, let's get you up to Portland by the end of the season um, and start getting you working with the same staff that you'll be with next year. Um, that says something about how the Red Sox received him. And I think that um, the way I, I was, I, I went into the ranking process thinking that Teal might rank anywhere from three to five. Um, and the way that it was put to me by a couple of, uh, a couple of evaluators from outside the Red Sox organization was like Teal is way closer to two than he is to four. Yeah, no, again, that matches everything we're hearing. It definitely seems like the Red Sox, you never can predict who's going to fall to you. But the fact he did fall to them certainly looks like good luck on their part and looks like they might have their future franchise capture here. Again, small sample, but everything he showed before that throughout his career, as you mentioned, and then what he continued to do in his pro debut, everything points to arrow up. This guy's going to be someone to watch in the coming years. Alex, you mentioned that these were kind of the clear top three as you went through the reporting process. Look at this four to ten group. Uh, you have some players kind of all over the map. You have said Ed Rafaela, who made his major debut last year, had a good year in the upper levels, though the strikeout to walk, the aggressiveness was still slightly red flaggish. Um, you have some really young players like Miguel Blyce, who are tooled out, but um, you know haven't been able to put it together in, in full season ball. 
take me through this four to 10 group. How close was it? How jumbled was it? Could you move guys around in any order? Where were kind of the tiers here? Yeah, there was a pretty good jumble. Um, I, I think that uh, Rafaela ended up being uh, being number four. The floor is really, really good based on elite defense um, in center field. Like you continue to hear uh, evaluators think that there's a chance that he's kind of at that, you know, gold glove caliber defensive center fielder. Um, I do think that the uh, that the strike zone judgment and swing decisions are going to be uh, are going to be an issue, and I'm I'm not sure to what degree those are uh, those are enormously correctable. Um, I think that they can be improved, but um, in particular, the the walk rate was super super low in AAA this year. I think it was you know just off the top of my head. I'm not looking at the numbers. My I feel like it was four to five percent in yeah. in in AAA this year, like with the with the with the automatic balls and strike system, uh, walk numbers were going bananas, right? Like the average walk rate across AAA was what, like twelve to fifteen percent? I don't remember where it was, but like you're talking about someone who was walking it. You know, my my guess off the top of my head is like thirty percent uh, rate of the league, something like that. So yeah, that's a that's a free swinger. And um, <laughs> how much are you able to hone that in? And um, and how much are you able to limit that where there's real barrel life? Like there is like, you know, surprising ability. Um, it's not like, it's not crazy exit velocity that he generates, right? He tops out in like the, I, I think like the 107-ish, 108-ish range, but he gets to those numbers pretty consistently when he's barreling it up, right? Like there's there's extra base pop in the bat, but if pitchers can, if pitchers can always attack him on the fringes of the zone, um, then, uh, then it's going to be difficult for him to uh, cons- consistently produce. So, not sure exactly. Like, I know that there's good defensive value there. I think that you're looking at probably an inconsistent offensive player in the big leagues uh, who might have some seasons that are pretty special, um, but also some that are kind of disappointing and where uh, where the glove needs to be a carrying tool and you kind of live with the bat. Um, he could prove me wrong. He's still young. And I, and I do want to be mindful of the fact that like his development course has been messed up. Like it has been for so many players by that lost gap year. But um, you know, there's, it's, it's not a, like, it's, it's not a, a, there's a clear defensive floor. There's not a clear offensive floor. Um, Will Abreu is someone who I ended up uh, being very impressed with at the major league level. And um, and ended up kind of having, I, I did not project him as being a top 10, uh, a top 10 player in the system, but he moved up right into that kind of four to six range for me based on, um, he had, once he was healthy this year, he had been kind of banged up a little bit, uh, for part of the year. He had a monster performance in AAA in, uh, in August where you got to see like, oh, there's some barrel life that allows him to really, when he, when he juices the ball, he can really juice it. Um, but also some great swing decisions, super high walk rates uh, in AAA that translated to the big leagues. There were good swing decisions. He swung and missed in the big leagues, but he was swinging and missing at the right pitches, in addition to making good sound contact on a line-to-line basis in the big leagues. So he's like a nice big league floor player where I would expect that he has a far greater shot of being on the 2024 Red Sox out of spring training than does Rafael, which is how he jumped up. Miguel Blaze, like you I, I want to go yeah. back to Abreu there real quick. Given the strides we saw him take at AAA and his successful major league debut, is he a future everyday player for the Red Sox? What do you think his ultimate role will end up being? I have a feeling that uh, he is more likely to be um, he he seems more likely to uh, to be a platoon guy. I, I think that there are some left on left struggles that they were trying to protect him from uh, over the course in in the big leagues, but. 
um, I, I think that you're looking at a, at the uh, at the right side of a platoon. Yeah, no, and again, that's a valuable player, if not a superstar. And, part, sure. I, and I will say, like the the Red Sox are very bullish, you know, and I think that there's at least a, a case he should be a uh, a fifty to a fifty five grade defensive right fielder um, and someone who you could you know be passive who would provide passable defense in center. No, and again, that there's value there for sure. I actually want to ask you about Nick York. He was a surprise first round pick in the shortened 2020 draft, had a fantastic first full season, had a really, really difficult second full season. And last year at double A, it was an okay season. So we've seen a bad season, an okay season, and a great season out of Nick York. What is his outlook right now? What are evaluators saying? And ultimately, what does his future look like? I think that uh, he is seen as kind of being a uh, a solid everyday second baseman. Um, I think that his his defense has improved in pro ball. He came into pro ball with a lot of questions about is he going to have any defensive value? And I think that generally speaking, like he has good instincts, good hands, um, not a not a ton of range, but um, but he he's a great out converter. So uh, he's he's oh he's done enough to suggest he can stick at second base. Um, where his ability to hit for average, uh, even though there's been incon- performance inconsistency throughout his career, and I think that that's more accepted as like a likely part of his game than uh, than had been expected coming out of that incredible 2021 pro debut. Um, still, you're still looking at a guy who can uh, at second base deliver uh, solid averages and uh, you know like be a 55 hitter, let's say, or maybe more, maybe more than that. Um, with, uh, with doubles, with a a pretty good amount of doubles power, right? Like you're going to get, you're going to get some ISO, but it's going to be more driven by doubles and really hard line drives into the gaps, uh, than it will be by, uh, by loft and by, uh, really turning and burning on balls. Um, so I think that, you know, you're still probably, I, I think that the, the likely projection, most people, most of the evaluators you talk to still see him as being. Uh, an everyday player, but it's not the same kind of impact that I think the Red Sox that, you know, that you might have dreamed on in 2021 when it looked like he might be, he had a chance to be an elite offensive performer uh, with a slash line that exceeded 300, 400, 500 in his pro debut as a 19 year old, which is the sort of thing you don't see a ton of. Yeah, absolutely. Two high profile draftees that are not in the top 10. I wanted to check in with you on Mikey Romero and Blaze Jordan. Romero was a first round pick 24th overall in 2022, had kind of split reviews coming out of Orange Lutheran High School. Great feel for the game. There were questions about strength, was hurt most of his first full season, didn't do much of anything when he was back on the field. But again, he was coming off of an injury and there's only 34 games. Blaze Jordan injured again. And then, yeah, I mean, there's just not not a huge sample to work with there. You know, Blaze Jordan was one of the most famous high school players to come out in some time with huge power, was drafted by the Red Sox in the third round in that shortened 2020 draft. And despite some scouting questions, keeps performing, keeps putting up good averages, hits for power. What's the outlook for these two? Because they're not in the top 10, but they certainly have some name recognition. Yeah, I think that Mikey Romero's year is essentially viewed as a wash, right? There wasn't a whole lot that we can learn from it because uh, he was um, he had a he was dealing with a lower back injury starting in spring training. It left him months behind in the start of the season, which I think uh, was longer than was it, it was it was a longer to deal with injury than expected. Um, got out, 
was, you know, there were, it was, it was difficult for him. He got out so late that he was going to be behind the competition. Uh, once he did get on the field, the Red Sox nonetheless tried to push through and make up for lost time, getting him quickly from single A Salem to high A Greenville. Um, and then shortly after that promotion, the, the back started acting up again. So I, I think that the, you know, uh, there's, there's some prospect stock hit just because you're dealing with a back injury that was recurrent um, at the same time, uh, at, at the same time, like there's whatever you thought he was in high school, you kind of hold to that evaluation in all likelihood because you didn't really get a chance um, to see much one way or the other uh, this year. But I think that you in high school, you were looking at a guy with uh, with tremendous bat to ball skills um, who projected as being uh, as being probably an above average defender at second base and maybe adequate to be a. Um, a fill-in at shortstop. Uh, some people would have had him a little bit better than that, you know, as a, uh, you, uh, but I, I think that, you know, right, you're at least looking at a fallback option uh, at the more valuable, the middle infield spots in someone who could be an, a, a valuable two-way player at second base. I think you hold, you more or less hold to that evaluation, but you diminish the likelihood that it's going, that, that uh, he's going to hit on that ceiling based on the fact that it was an injured year. Um, Jordan is an interesting one because the offensive performance has been consistent um, over the course of his uh, minor league career in a way that no one anticipated. He was drafted. He, the Red Sox were drawn to the fact that he had huge power as an amateur. Um, there are, you know, he was a legendary uh, 500 foot home run hitter uh, in home run derbies as a 13 year old, um, you know, metal batter. No, that's ridiculous. Uh, but in pro ball, he's been more, he's, uh, he, he hasn't been able to kind of narrow in on the pitches he can drive uh, to the point where you've seen that power flash. And instead, uh, he's been able to hit the ball hard enough that he's hit for pretty good averages. Um, and he's controlled his strikeout rate in a way that I don't think anyone anticipated. However, his defensive profile looks like, in all likelihood, it's first base or nothing. Um, that said, Blaze Jordan this, this offseason has been uh, has been working very hard to uh, to, you know, to drop some weight. Um, to make himself more agile, um, to get quicker, and to put himself in a better and healthier state of mind. I think that um, it was unknown to a lot of us that he had dealt with some serious mental health issues um, that had forced him to essentially take a break in the middle of his uh, first full professional season in 2021. Um, and the fact that he's now comfortable talking about those, um, you would hope for you know you would hope for the human being that that puts him in a better position to be successful in all walks of life. Yeah, and again, that's more important than anything on the field. I, I will say, I, I do feel like in some ways his performance is a little bit underrated because of the profile concerns. But for a 20-year-old to get to double A, hit 296, 351, 41, 18 homers, 86 RBIs, good strikeout to walk, 32 doubles. I do think there's some impact in the bat there that positional questions at that age, that's not the profile a lot of people like. But I think it's he keeps proving he can hit. Yeah, I think that there's... The the issue is that uh, the issue with his offensive profile is that there are struggles against um, against major league average velocity and up. Um, so a lot of the uh, a lot of the production has occurred, and it should also be noted that his Portland offensive production uh, wasn't the same as his Greenville offensive production. Right? We talked about Greenville as a launching pad. Once he got to Double A, it was a far more modest profile. He had two fifty four there, two ninety six OBP, four hundred two slug. Um, and was more, you know, six homers, 10 doubles, 49 games. Um, so I think that there's concern that that's, that may be what he faces in 
uh, as he moves up the ladder, that uh, both the increasing velocity that he faces and the ability and the, and the improving command um, could ultimately uh, limit his offensive profile. But again, super duper young, yeah. 20 years old, deserves a lot of credit for producing in the way that he did. And, you know, shoot, uh, that kind of line is a 20 year old. Like if you adjust that to the context of being a 20 year old in double A, it's terrific. Now he just has to show that he can keep improving. Absolutely. Alex, as we wrap up here, kind of a high level view, when you look at the overall Red Sox system, one to 30, how do you assess the depth as well as its strengths and weaknesses? Because the Red Sox, there's some good players here, but I think we can agree they're not one or two players away from suddenly winning the AL East. It's going to take a, a lot of players coming up and helping in different forms and fashions. Well, I think that uh, I think that the key for them is going to be creatively using their strength, which is their position players, um, to be able to get more arms because we have not discussed a single pitcher in this conversation. And there's a reason for that, right? They had some interesting performances. They, uh, you have Wickelman Gonzalez, who posted the highest strikeout rate in all of minor league baseball among pitchers who threw at least 100 innings in the minors. Good for him, right? But real strike throwing issues where it's very fair to question whether or not he'll be able to be a major league starting pitcher. Um, and Luis Perales uh, shows really good stuff. Um, he also was kind of at the back of the top end. Uh, at the same time, you know, the strike throwing isn't elite to the point in the lower minors where you say like slam dunk starter, particularly given, you know, that he's been banged up at times. So you have questions about uh, the durability. You do not have pitchers, excuse me, with uh, with real clear floors as future major league starters. And again, that gets back to the start of the conversation. Why was Craig Breslow brought on? Well, it's because there's an imbalance in their farm system. They have a wonderful mix of position players at the top of their organization. And one that I think, you know, you would know better than I, but um, there aren't a ton of organizations uh, that would have a top three of position players that can match theirs. Um, but once you, you know, but beyond that, they still have depth. They have, you know, they, they have some interesting players uh, they, they have some, you know, they have some clear big leaguers. There's uh, their system is in much, much, much better shape than it was five years ago. Um, but it's they're they're going to have to address the weaknesses that exist in it, because the thing that prevents them that has sabotaged their uh, ability to be a sustainable contender has been the uh, the absence of any kind of consistent pitching pipeline. You know, you look at the Rays. What do they have a consistent pitching pipeline when they surround that with good position players? They're great, um, but I, I'm I'm not sure whether or not there are teams. The Red Sox obviously thrived. Their 2018 team was built around having elite position players, and maybe they're maybe they're getting to that point. They're not there yet. They're not uh, at the level of that group yet. Um, but it's it is very challenging to to create the supporting pitching infrastructure around such a group uh, to truly be a great team year after year. Yeah, and you mentioned the Dodgers and the Astros earlier in this conversation, and they're two teams that have had a great run of homegrown pitching come up and make immediate impacts in the major leagues as well. So that's a constant theme and something the Red Sox are going to have to try and replicate. We'll see if Craig Breslow is successful in doing that. Alex, thank you so much for joining me. We appreciate your insight as always. Kyle, thanks for having me on. Great to be able to connect. Once again, that was Alex Spear of the Boston Globe. This has been another edition of the Baseball America Top 10 Prospects podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We would love to hear from you. For Alex Spear, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.